Coming up May 25th on Tuesday Night Live, archaeologist Gabriel Barkay of the Temple Mount Salvage Project will talk about rescuing Jewish artifacts dumped by the Muslim Waqf. Temple Mount is the sole heart and spirit of the Jewish people, the most important archaeological site of Judaism in the world. Join the live studio audience this Tuesday, May 25th at Hechal Shlomo on King George Street in downtown Jerusalem. For tickets, email tickets at thelandofisrael.com. Tickets at thelandofisrael.com. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the nations. You're on the Noahide Nation show. I'm your co-host, Ray Patterson, and let me introduce my other co-host, Mr. Prescott Johnson. Prescott, come on in here, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful, Ray. Lovely day here. We got some sunshine going. Is that global warming? Are you trying to give me a hard time or what? You know, the sun has been around a lot longer than global warming, so I, yes, I just assume I just assume it's the same sun that was there, you know, thousands of years ago, or depending on your... Uh, never mind, we're going to stay away from the question on, uh, on uh, how, how long we've been here. How's that? Good enough. Uh, we've we been do, here since Hashem put us here. Uh, yeah, and we do have uh, a much better show than what this conversation could possibly lead up to, so uh, oh, why don't we go well. ahead and... <laughs> yeah. Well, we'd have to go back to Genesis, which means opening yeah. up the Torah, and then we would never be able to do the interview, so uh, okay. we, right. we need to do this because it's, it's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm yeah. excited about the show, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. It has to do with relationships, and boy, I'll tell you what, everyone knows I need help in that area. So, <laughs> without uh, any further ado, I want to uh, go ahead and introduce our guest. She's a, a fabulous lady, and she's uh, an instructor on our Noahide Nations website in the Academy of Shem. And she is, has a BS in family counseling and is currently in private practice as a certified life coach. And her specialty is in parent coaching. She conducts uh, parent and educational workshops, community adult Bible study, and has led teleconference support groups for parents uh, who are struggling with teens. And we know how difficult that can be at, at times. Our guest does have a writing career going, and part of that includes a column that she does regularly with the Jewish press on uh, a parental perspective on struggling teens uh, under her uh, pseudonym, Debbie Brown. And you can find these articles at www.jewishpress.com and simply on the homepage type in the name Debbie Brown and that will bring up our guest, Rachel Wise. And she is the author of those uh, fabulous articles. She also has recently created a graphically detailed workbook titled The Separate Journeys, A Parent's Perspective, uh, which is the, with the exclusive purpose for parents to gain a fresh perspective uh, at viewing uh, parenting, children, and, and the challenges that evolve in a parent-child relationship and, and how parents can you know, really help minimize conflict uh, and work toward an effective relationship. 
And then finally, our guest has an ebook out, and you can find this uh, on the Noahide Nation's website. It's titled Aspects of an Effective Relationship, a Biblical Learning Experience. And again, you can find that. It's available for purchase in the download section of the Noahide Nation store. And feel free to go there at www.noahidenations.com. And our guest, believe it or not, and I know it's going to be no surprise to any of you folks, she is an observant Orthodox Jew who truly loves and is, and is, is very much enjoying helping teach Noahides. Uh, she is doing the mitzvah of being a light unto the nations. Let me go ahead and bring her in. Her name is Rachel Weiss. Rachel, come on in here and join us. How are you? Hi, Ray. Great. I'm doing great. Thank you. This is a really exciting moment for me uh, to be interviewed and speaking to you and Prescott and your listening audience. Well, and we are very much so glad to have you here. And just uh, before we you know, get started into this, I wanted to let folks know how they can contact you, because I'm sure they're going to want to after this show. And please jot this down, folks. It's lovetoughcoach at AOL.com. And hopefully I'll remember to make uh, a mention of that towards the end of the show as well. Now, Rachel, I'm kind of curious to you know, kind of get things going. You're, you're uh, uh, teaching in our classroom. You're teaching a bunch of, of Gentiles who are like sponges. I've been in <laughs> uh, you know, some of these classes, and it's really remarkable how these classes go. I mean, they're very interactive. People are heavily involved, and you have their attention from the moment you come on to the moment you leave. And, and, I, and I, I find that absolutely fascinating that you're able to hold their attention to that level for an entire hour. It's absolutely amazing. And just so that you folks uh, know how to get there and you can visit our classes, they're free on the Noahide Nation's website in the Academy of Shem. And they're every Tuesday from 9 till 10 Eastern Standard Time. So we hope that you can stop in and uh, have a listen to Rachel's classes. They're absolutely fabulous. But I'm curious, Rachel, this type of work, uh, I mean, you're working with parents, and in particular parents with struggling teens, which is probably one of the most difficult times in both a teen's and parent's life. How, I mean, how do you manage this? Is this something you wanted to do? You know, since you were a child, I mean, what led you to choose this? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, definitely, I did not want to do this since I'm a child. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I was a good teenager. Come to think of it, but I always saw as I got older, I saw teenagers as you know just difficult people. What really got me into it you know i my whole background is very different actually i do come from an art background what really got me interested is when my husband and i were actually going through our own when we might say this uh, traversing the challenges of adolescence i found that what i had learned when i was growing up the way i was parented was not working that at that time it was uh, you did whatever your parents did they did what they parents did and going back this is what everyone did and the approach that i was using which was mostly you know parents says and you do it was not working so um my husband and i decided we were going to become educated and trained in a better way to reduce conflict and to learn a better way to relate 
to our teen, our older teenager at that time. And so we did go for an education, uh, gained a tremendous amount of knowledge. And what was interesting was the first time um, I had ever heard of two words, I had was not part of either my husband's dictionary or my own dictionary. And those two words were empowerment and choice. It just didn't exist. So with that information and that knowledge, I began teaching I got involved with a, a support group and actually was an email support group. And I started sharing with other parents who had participated the benefit of my knowledge and what I was learning, my husband and I were learning. And I found that other parents were not learning. They were just doing much the way what I was doing. But they were definitely a sponge, as the word that you used before. And they were trying to gain better ways to affect their relationships. And suddenly I found myself being a little bit like Dear Abby. It's like people started looking to me for guidance and direction and advice. And as I was learning and as I was being trained, I passed that on. I passed along the information. But I was slowly learning that not every family is alike. Not everyone is the same. And not everyone can do the or implement the same tools in the same way. So part of my educational background and my training was to learn how to understand people's challenges, how they would have to relate differently perhaps to their children, but always with the same basic underpinning of the tools. So um, that kind of really, it inspired me to, you know, listening to other people's. And also something else I wanted to say that I never thought of my husband or myself as bad people. We just lacked information. And what I noticed with a lot of parents is they, too, lacked information. They were not bad parents. They lacked this knowledge of how to relate better. So that was it made it so much easier to see people as just loving, nurturing people who just required more knowledge on how, like I say, how to relate better and how to have a better relationship, how to diminish the conflict that was taking place in their homes. So well, I, I, I know that's one of the major uh, problems with our, our medical services here in the United States is uh, they, don't, they no longer hand out instructions with the birth of a child. So <laughs> I, I, I can appreciate the difficulties that have, have come as a result of that. And, and now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you use a, a program called uh, uh, Neuro Linguistics, NLP is that, yeah, it's, is that? It's yeah. It's it's really it's neuro linguistic programming. It's okay. NLP, NLP for short. And yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. It's I won't say that it's a program. Actually, it is a coaching tool. You know, if you break down the words neuro linguistic and programming, this is really what you get. Uh, neuro is the nervous system, which that includes the brain. And that's through which the internal, ex- the uh, external experiences is processed internally, and all this, whatever we pro- whatever we take in, we store and recall for present and future use. Uh, also, keeping in mind that the external experiences reaches us through our senses, the five senses, and that's sight, the eyes, visual, sound is the auditory, feel is the kinesthetic, and smell and taste. The word linguistic which relates to language, relates to how it plays, um, how language plays a vital role in decoding these external experiences that we're having and 
how it gives meaning to the experiences. And finally, the word programming, which is much like a computer um, programs that run. It's the way we process the information that comes in and the strategies that we use to make decisions and the actions. So basically what NLP is really about, it's a set of principles and strategies that focuses on the details of how we communicate both externally, which is in the outside world, and internally, that's in our heads, and how we process, store, and recall this communication, and also how we can change and empower the communication to achieve the results and the goals we want. So that's why it fits in very well to coaching, um, because just, uh, I don't know whether the listening audience really knows much about coaching. It's a field of about, uh, all about 15 years old. And it's interesting, the question I always get is, you know, um, what's coaching? Is it like therapy? That's always like the second second question. And, you know, I know this already. This is exactly what people are going to say. And sometimes they'll even say, well, how is it different than therapy? That's a little bit more sophisticated, assuming that they actually see it as two different modalities. So all I can say about coaching is, you know, coaching is it's an empowering way to help someone achieve a goal or reach a goal. And when I say empowering, um, that means is that um, the coach will be encouraging, inspiring, and supportive. And it's not about, well, that's really what it is about, but let me tell you what it's not about. It's not about telling someone what to do. And that's where a lot of people get a little confused. You know, sometimes someone, a client will come to a coach, and somewhere in the midst they'll say, you know, please, and they're discussing something, you know, please tell me what I should do. And a good coach will <laughs> respond by saying, well, I can give you a few perspectives or I can give you some options. We can talk about the options. And sometimes they may take the lead and then do what we call brainstorming, which is sometimes people you know, are so stuck that they just need to hear something substantial, something that they could really get their teeth into, and then they could start thinking on their own. So it's, it's a very empowering way of helping people. Um, and NLP is very useful in achieving these goals. Hmm. Well, now I was just wondering. You you had said that uh, that you people started coming to you. Was that because they were finding that you were actually functioning naturally as a coach, or did you just learn this so well that they recognized that, or were they looking at your kids and they're saying, "Oh, she's starting to do something right," so? You know, maybe she can help uh, You were us. referring to the, the email support group, right? The parents that I had encountered in the email group? Is that what you... Yeah, you said that, uh, yeah, you said that when you got started, people were actually, you know, had started coming to you or to actually started asking right. you, you know, for uh, for help. So I'm, I'm wondering, what do you think or do you know why that actually well, started happening? Was okay, just... well, first of all, let me just be very clear. At that time, I was what you call a paraprofessional. I had not yet entered the field professionally. I had not gotten my certification, gotten my professional degree. Okay. So um, on a paraprofessional level, what they were, I had just given them some guidance and what they were noticing, nothing to do with me, but what they were noticing is that they were seeing changes in the relationships. And once someone would see a change, they would write back and talk about um, how it worked. Sometimes people would talk about how it didn't work and then I would, you know, talk about some other ideas, give other perspectives. Well, other people participating were reading and taking it in and and starting to bring in their personal experiences and difficulties. 
And much of the time, I really didn't coach them personally because at that time, like I felt I didn't feel um, it was an appropriate thing for me to do because I was not at that time professional. However, I did do a lot of teaching because in coaching, uh, when we coach, we actually teach first and then we coach second. So there was a lot of teaching going on. When I say teaching concepts and tools, teaching perspectives, just a lot of teaching and holding the pe- people's hands um, figuratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we can't do that with email. Um, I, I will say <laughs> some very interesting experiences about email and you know how you can support people through communication. Well, especially because if, if you're only reading what they're writing, you sort of have to, because uh, a lot of the emotion is assumed to a certain point when, you, when you're reading uh, right. email. But I, I, but I have found when I'm reading email that even if I don't know the person, that how they express themselves still comes through somehow in right. how they write. And you know what? And how they misunderstand what you write also comes through. Uh, I've had plenty of experiences with that, and here was interesting. Um, I loved those experiences because at the same time, uh, I had a mentor in a professional capacity, and I would bring some of the emails or discuss some of the emails with my mentor, and we talk about how that person was misunderstanding me and how their response was really a direct result of misunderstanding. And so my, I felt my job as a good communicator and this was before I knew about NLP, Um, I felt my job was to make myself clear. I would take responsibility for what I was saying. And now, you know, a few years later that I've studied NLP, uh, that's at the basis of NLP is taking responsibility for what we, our communication, for our language that we use and how it's being received. Right. That's why it takes me so long to write an email. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, really we've horrible. got a, a few minutes left here, Rachel. I'm, my curiosity lies uh, also in how were you able to take Torah, which I, I know you use a lot in the classes that you have at No Hide Nations, but how did you tie Torah into your work? Uh, I mean, what even give you, gave you the thought to do that? Well, that's a very interesting background, and I'm glad you asked me that. Um, as you mentioned earlier in my bio, I do have a an Orthodox Jewish educational well, it's an educational background. Also, it's not just that I'm personally Orthodox in my observance. Uh, I have since I'm in first grade, I have a, a strictly Orthodox educational background, and I've studied Chumash, which is the five books of the Torah, with commentaries all the years throughout my education. I don't know if it's changed a whole lot, but a lot of what we, of the learning was very much rote. It was, we learned, we would go home, review, and then we would spit it right back to the teacher on the test. Um, <laughs> it, did, it didn't do a lot for me, and I just did what I had to do if I wanted to get a good grade. High school was not greatly different than that, but somewhere in the world of adolescence, it just clicked that, you know, these were real people. All these great Torah personalities were really, were, were individual, they're people, they're human beings. Right. And I suddenly had this idea, this question, like, who were they? What made them tick? And, and that was always like, what, what was it like for them? You know, they did have challenges, many challenges. Well, what was it really like for them? You know, what, what was their daily life like? What did, 
What did they think when they had to go through these challenges? And yes, we know they were great people. They overcame the challenges. But I wanted to know the in-between, starting with the beginning. How did they reach the point where they reached the greatness? And what were the day-to-day challenges like? And that was a dream. I just wanted to, I wanted to understand the psychology behind these people. Um, so that was a long, many years of a dream. And it took about 30 years Till the dream suddenly came to, well, it, I, I've been able to work on that dream. And one day, after all this learning, after all this training that I got, I said to myself, now, one minute, self, all this stuff that you were wanting, all these years, you wanted to find out about all these great tower personalities. Now you've got so much information about training. You've got so much training about relationships, concepts, tools. There has to be in the Torah. And so I think I was back about four years ago or so that I began a project. I undertook a project that I was convinced I would find all these tools that I was learning about, that I would find the tools in the Torah. Um, It would take work. It would take a lot of um, research on commentaries, uh, including the Rashi commentary, and using... Actually, I had a pretty good grammar background, asking a lot of questions the way Rashi does, and referring to grammar, questioning grammar, questioning placement of words, sometimes letters, missing letters. So um, that really became the source of my, my project, and I decided the place I was going to find it, at least to begin finding it, was all the way at the beginning in Genesis, where we see Hashem as the perfect parent, as he is parenting Rather than viewing Adam and Eve as mates or husband and wife, we would be viewing them as children. So Hashem would be that perfect parent parenting his children. And so I began with that one verse that states the word, the first time the word Adam is ever mentioned, Adam, Adam, that's where I began. The rest is history. About two years to do this, but I did it. Wow. And it seems to be working well. I mean, I get nothing but high praise from uh, for you from all the people who attend the classes and like i say i've Thank sat you. in these classes and there's some days i'm i'm racking my brain to come up with an answer to throw back at you so <laughs> it's it's fascinating <laughs> how you are able to tie in a uh, torah and you know I, i'm sitting here making it sound like it's this miraculous thing and it really shouldn't be because all of us in our everyday lives should be using the torah to conduct our lives and to live our lives and uh, yet it seems unusual to sit in a classroom where someone is actually using the Torah to teach their uh, course and especially when it has to do with developing effective relationships. So I find that absolutely uh, remarkable. Now, I understand that uh, you've got something special planned for Prescott and I for the second half oh, yeah. of this show. And I don't know <laughs> if I should be nervous, if I should uh, uh, shut my mic off and run away or what yet. But uh, we're going to be coming back. We're going to well, take he, a break he here. Tell me, he told me he was going to behave. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, and 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 I will. I'm going to hold I, him I to that. I so, uh, but in the meantime, we need to take a break, <laughs> folks. Stick with us. We're going to come back with Rachel Wise after the break. See you then. Being alone on Shabbos isn't fun. 
That's why CUNShabbos.com offers free and safe Jewish hospitality, which helps match guests with host families from Israel, America, and anywhere around the world. It's like Craigslist, Janglo, or JDate, but for Shabbos meals. It's great for both travelers, singles, or just someone needing a good place for Shabbos. Don't spend Shabbos alone. Visit www.cuonshabbos.com. That's C-U-N-Shabbos, S-H-A-B-B-O-S dot com. It's four o'clock in the morning, and you have to go to the bathroom. Again. Don't just suffer. Get Preso. Made from all natural ingredients grown right here in Israel, Preso brand Opuntima capsules can help men suffering from prostate or urinary problems and women suffering from incontinence or cystitis. Don't just suffer. Get Preso. On the web at www.preso.com. That's P-R-I-S-S-O dot com. Welcome back, everybody. We certainly appreciate you sticking around for the second half of our show today. Prescott and I have been speaking with Rachel Wise and learning a thing or two about relationship building. And I understand that we do have something special that's going to be happening this second half. We're actually going to be attending a class. So, folks, get on your thinking caps. And, Prescott, you too, uh, get on your thinking cap. All right. And, and we're going to go ahead and uh, learn a little bit for the next half hour with Rachel Wise. Rachel, it's all yours. We are now the student. Okay. By the way, there is no test at the end, so you can take a deep breath right now, okay? No midterms, no finals. That's it. Just fun fun learning. (laughs) And we'll we'll tap in to see how your your thinking cap is on. Okay. (laughs) That's worse. (laughs) The, The topic that I chose to discuss today is about unconditional love. And this is something we've done in our class in the yeshiva shame and uh, it was actually it was a very interesting segment and i decided to do this because what i find fascinating about this particular subject is a lot of people don't really understand what unconditional love is about besides which you know we're going to do a little bit um definitions a little ex- explanation and we're also going to be giving an interesting perspective on the subject based on the terminology that we're going to see in the verses. Before we do, I want to start out with just a very brief statement. The material that we're referring to comes from Genesis. And we're actually going to be going from one, speaking again, like I said earlier, we first we touch upon the relationship between Hashem and Adam and Eve. And that's what we're going to first touch upon. And then we're going to jump ahead from there to another section in Genesis. It's the Torah portion of Toldot, which is chapter 25. So when we see Hashem in his relationship with Adam and Eve in the second chapter, Genesis 2, in the verses 8 through 14, basically it's a description of what Hashem is providing man with all the things that he's going to need to help him survive and to become productive. What's interesting is that we're, there's a description of what the land looks like. There's, there's vegetation, there's water, there are rivers, there's uh, stone gems and stones. The landscape is beautiful. 
And what's important about those verses is there are no conditions or criteria that are indicated as a prerequisite for all that which Adam is going to be receiving. And so from this we can glean that Hashem is modeling for us unconditional love toward his creation, Adam, toward his child. Now the question is, what is unconditional love? So let's hear from our students. Okay, either Prescott or Ray, how do you define unconditional love? And I will give you the definition that Webster gives, but let's just see how you define it. Take it away. I, I think age oh. should uh, go before uh, <laughs> beauty. <laughs> well, aren't you going to go then? <laughs> um, I'm going <laughs> to... Uh, unconditional love. Um, I'm going to just off the top of my head. I'm going to say unconditional love would be, uh, uh, you know, unconditional love to me is somebody who's willing to sacrifice all for someone else. Hmm. Okay, that's that's a very good um, explanation, and I'm sure we we would find certain um, examples, actually illustrations of that in the Torah. Thank you, Ray Prescott. You have a thought on that? Not to sound like I'm just plain on the word unconditional, but I, 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 I guess I'm thinking that it's love without preconditions, that I'm not going to love you because I'm going to love you regardless. Okay, regardless. Okay, that's actually pretty much what we would say is the definition for unconditional love. I'm going to go just give it a little bit more detail. Point as... for me, Ray. <laughs> We don't give points in our class. All we give is check marks for everyone who participates. Okay. Yeah, get rid so, of that uh, red pen, will you? Thank, thank you both for your participation. Okay. Webster defines unconditional love as to love someone without a, any conditions attached, regardless. And by the way, that was the word that you used, Prescott. Regardless of the person's actions, beliefs, or behaviors. It is giving freely to a loved one no matter what. And not expecting anything in return. It's also considered an unlimited way of being, and it is seen as infinite and measureless. So that's with a little bit more detail. Mm. So now we're going to take that, keep in mind that explanation, and now we're going to be viewing, moving on in the Torah portion told dot, which is chapter 25, verse 28. We're going to be viewing a foursome relationship, parents and children. And they are Isaac and Rebecca, and their children, the twins, Jacob and Esau. So I'm going to read the verse. Actually, I'm going to say it in Hebrew first, and then I will say it in English. And what we're going to see in this verse is the topic, loving one's child, and how it's clearly expressed in the following words. In Hebrew, Vaya'ehav Yitzchak et Esav kitzayid b'fiv. Verifka ohevet et Yaakov in English. And Isaac loved Esau, for he was also a hunter with his mouth. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, at first glance, gentlemen, what seems strange in this verse, in terms of, we, of we, if we view this in terms of a relationship, what can we say seems a little bit strange in the way the words are expressed. I'm just going to repeat the words again because you don't have a blackboard in front of you. And Isaac loved Esau, for he was also a hunter with his mouth, but Rebecca loved Jacob. So does anything here comes, 
come at you as being a little strange? Uh, for me, immediately, I'm struck with Isaac saying that he he loved Esau for he was also a hunter. And it was almost like, in fact, it almost didn't it sound like, I mean, we all know that Esau was uh, a handful, without question, <laughs> uh, for, his, for his parents. And, but it almost seems like uh, Isaac is trying to say that he did love him because he was also a hunter. You know, recognizing that he was a handful, and uh, it, it took more things for him to to love Esau. Um, and then I get to Rebecca, and it's almost as if she loves Jacob so much that Esau is, uh, dare I say, a second thought or an afterthought, or I, you know, I don't know if I'm uh, describing it uh, uh, properly, but uh, it seems uh, she has a very dominating love for Jacob, almost to the exclusion of Esau. Okay, so in English terminology, how would you describe that type of a relationship, Prescott? Do you, you are you following my question? Uh, I think so, because I, what what I took from that is that they were showing favoritism. Okay, exactly. Parental favoritism. Okay, great point. So here's the question: Why would the Torah give us such type of language that would allow us to walk away thinking that it, you know, it's kind of a stumbling block? Why would we think the Torah is teaching us about parental favoritism that this is what exists? Does this really highlight? some character traits of the forefathers and the foremothers? Is this something the Torah might want to um, really stress or emphasize? Okay, so that's the question. Hmm. For an answer, we're going to actually refer to, we have two different thoughts. One is a commentary by Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. Now, he was a 20th century rabbinic leader and scholar in Germany. And we're going to first refer to his commentary on the Torah. And he discusses parental love with regard to this verse. And he teaches us that both parents should be on the same page insofar as educating their children and having the same feelings of love for all of them. That includes a child who is, whose behavior is not that good, as in the case here with Esau. Mm-hmm. In fact, Rabbi Hirsch also adds that such a child who is not good requires even more love, or I should say the child that, that behaves not so good. He requires more love than one who's physically weak or ill. Uh. Rabbi Hirsch continues to mention that Isaac's sympathies toward Esau and Rebecca's expressed love toward Jacob can easily be explained by the attraction of opposites. And he continues to say that although these sympathies are explainable, nevertheless, parents should not allow such hidden feelings to influence them in making any difference in their love toward their children. So, based on Rabbi Hirsch's commentary, the words of the text appear to imply parental favoritism. And so now we're back to that same question don't we see that? Wouldn't we see that as a stumbling block? Is it something really the Torah is emphasizing and teaching us about parents and how the forefathers and foremothers engage in parental favoritism? And therefore, what I offer you now is a different way to explain these words with a different perspective that does not necessarily reflect parental favoritism. 
And in order to understand this perspective, we have to operationalize. And that's a little bit of a scientific term that we use to talk about all the ramifications of a concept. So we're going to actually review the concept of love, or I should say unconditional love, and what exactly that might mean. And it would be as follows. I love my child without any conditions. That's what we said earlier. It it includes not expecting anything in return. But there are other things that can be said about how I love my child. In other words, how do I take responsibility for my child? So how else does a responsible parent, what does a responsible parent do, behave, act towards a child that will indicate the or that will um, exemplify their maturity, their responsibility, and their love? What do you think? Um, I'm going to uh, Perhaps let me just give you a little bit of a clue, a little thought here. Think of a person, an adult, a a parent, and what makes up this parent? Okay, now it's no more just exclusively about what they're going to do for the child, but it's more about who is this parent. And if you think about who is this parent, you know, top to bottom, all that this, this parent encompasses, how would that relate to responsibility and unconditional love? So there's your clue. Well, the uh, unconditional love has to come in because this is what you're supposed to have for all of your your children, even if the children or the child is, as in Esau's case, a a handful. Uh, Rebecca needs to demonstrate to him that she loves him just as much as she loves Jacob. Okay, that's true. What and therefore, the Esau, Esau would, would respond to that, to Rebecca's love, as much as he responds presently to Isaac's love. Right? And now okay. it's both parents. There's not so a separation in his mind of the two parents. It's now two parents are one. So that's taking it out of the realm of parental favoritism and putting it into the realm of equal parenting, uh, equal feelings of, par- um, of the parents. That's true. We want to go a little bit further than that, though. What you, what is some, how can we um, further explain the concept of unconditional love in terms of what a parent would want to consider or, or um, what a parent might want to reflect on in terms of what he or she could do for the child? That would also be responsible, of course, responsible parenting. Well, I'm not a parent, so maybe, maybe I I'm having trouble. Sort of, it's my imagination that I have to use to try <laughs> do this. Okay, we but, love imagination. Yeah, um, I I don't know. Maybe I'm just not quite understanding. And and as we had warned uh, uh, the folks uh, in the previous radio show, which Rachel hasn't heard yet, that. Uh, we did warn them that you pick our brains and it hurts. <laughs> but but now are you are you talking about in terms of what what can what does the parent avail themselves or, or what do they look inside of themselves to use in order to 
be unconditional in their love? Is is that okay? Yes, you're is? going. Yes, you go. That's the right direction you're going. Okay. They're basically. They're, I'm I'm kind of sensing that they're basically going to be doing everything they humanly and spiritually can do to uh, demonstrate to this child that they 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 love them each equally. I mean, whatever okay. it takes. But but the right? text uh, but the text here kind of gives the the picture to us that there was favoritism. What it seems like. But it seems like, in terms of the question that we're raising here, that perhaps in in Isaac's case, that his his choice to love Esau was more unconditional because of Esau's character, and that Isaac saw his own motivation for doing that to be exactly that, that he knew that his son uh, perhaps had character flaws, and for that reason he had to love him more because he had to try and find or identify himself with Esau's struggle. Uh, okay, Prescott, you're really moving in the direction that I wanted to take you. Oh. So kudos to you, Ray. So were you. Okay, kudos <laughs> to both of you. So now let me offer you this perspective that actually takes into consideration Rabbi Hirsch's commentary of the attraction of opposites, and it is this. How do we define unconditional love? First of all, I love my child because this child was given to me by Hashem and therefore is worthy of my love. There is no other reason. That's point one. Point two, which actually takes into account what the both of you were saying. I will do whatever, Ray, this is what you were saying. I will do whatever I must and what I am able to do within my capacity, my abilities, my capabilities, my talents, and what and my character traits, everything that is that encompasses me in order to promote my child's physical, emotional, spiritual, healthy, and productive development. And that's what makes me a mature, responsible parent. So we have that, uh, that explanation for unconditional love. We can explain Rebecca's love of Jacob and Isaac's love of Esau in a positive way that does not negate the love each parent might have toward the other. In other words, we're not talking about now about um, parental favoritism, but each one has something very specific to offer in terms of love toward that particular child that is being linked to that parent. So we can explain now Rabbi Hirsch's concept of opposites, attracting opposites in the following way. What is it about me, Rebecca, that is special, that makes me different from Isaac? What quality, talent, or ability do I possess, which is unique to me, which only I can impart to this particular child that will help him achieve success in his future? And the exact same question can be applied when we examine Isaac's relationship to Esau. So what are the unique qualities that characterize and highlight each of these parents. And in order to find those answers, we're going to do a little, just a little bit of uh, exploration of psychological insight. First, we have to uh, describe who is Jacob. And there's a verse in the Torah that describes him as an ish-tam yoshev ohalim. He is a complete or a simple man who dwells in the tents. And this is another way of saying that he excels in Torah learning and he is spiritually connected to Hashem. 
So that's his quality, right? Those are his traits, great traits. However, he lacks something. Do you have any idea what he's lacking? He's this Talmud Chacham. He's this wise man who studies Torah. But what else? What is he lacking, though? Uh, you don't know what's the okay. Hunter, the, the, hunt, the hunter instincts? <laughs> the hunter? Okay, you've got it. Okay, and what is the hunter instinct other than, we call it in today's lingo, street smarts? He doesn't have okay. the street smarts. He wasn't an alpha and, male. Right. What? Right. He wasn't an alpha male. He wasn't alpha male. Okay. Um, now, because <laughs> he was so imbued with Torah and engrossed in Torah learning, Rebecca understood that in his future, Jacob will not know how to deal with the likes of Esau in the future or Laban. And Laban was going to become part of his future life. Rebecca understood that he's going to require very specific and specialized skills in order that he can be successful in the environs of these two ruthless men. So the question is, who is the best person who could teach these skills if other than his mother, Rebecca? Question is, why is she, why can she teach this? What does she have going for her that she could teach these skills to her son? So what does she have going for her, gentlemen? What kind of environment does Rebecca come from? Well, well, she she was the one who uh, she she clearly had a very kind of go to it uh, personality because Avram sent was it Eliezer to uh, to get a wife for Isaac, and she was right. the one who offered to feed the camels and and uh, do all the hard work. She wasn't afraid of hard work. She wasn't afraid of uh, of going when asked without any hesitation. Uh, with right. Eliezer uh, back to Avram. Right. Prescott, you're talking about her attributes. That's You're accurate. That's great. But we're talking about what does she really come from? When she grew up, what was the household like? She grew up in a household with deception, thievery, manipulation, and that's she saw it. Right. And it was embedded in the home. That was all throughout the walls of the home. And therefore, something that she was able to learn, she observed it. And she had proficiency in that area. And how do we know that she really understood this deception, manipulation? Where do we see that she actually utilized it in a good way, though? Where do we see it? In well, how- let's move ahead. Let's move ahead just a little bit. Uh, Rebecca, what did she in her with Rebecca and Jacob? Where do we see that she used manipulation or she taught manipulation? Go ahead, Ray. Well, Rachel, I'm going to have to suggest that our listeners <laughs> attend your class because we have hit the top of the hour. Okay. And if they want the answer to these questions, they're going to have to sit in on your class. Um, as usual, it's never enough time, right, Prescott? No, it isn't. <laughs> never. <laughs> but we we appreciate the class. I do want to thank you for taking your time and, and sharing your vast wisdom with us. Uh, it was really a pleasure. And, Ray, I, I like what you said. Let, the listeners are more than welcome to join. Excellent. Well, thank you again. And, Prescott, we're going to see you next week. To our audience, we will see you next week. And in the meantime, please remember, my friends, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Shavuot Tov. Shalom. Shalom. 
Kidashta. The personal touch invite everyone to their two exciting stores, one in the heart of Jerusalem and one in Modeim. Kidashta. The personal touch is the epitome of elegant style and service. Sterling silver, artistic glassware, jewelry, talitot, mezuzot, and much more. And also features a full boutique wine department specializing in Israeli wines. And, of course, everything is available online at Judaica4u, Judaica, the numeral 4 and the letter U, dot com. Herbie's Bake Shop in Bethel, Israel, now offers you the opportunity to feed your favorite Israel National Radio Show hosts. Donate a pizza to the radio station or send a coffee break with hamantaschen or donuts. Just fill out the form online at www.herbiesbakeshop.com. The Arut Sheva Step gets hungry while podcasting. Show your support. Visit herbiesbakeshop.com. That's Herbie with a Y. Bakeshop.com. They'll love you for it.